This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to those who are perhaps listening for the first time, those who've never listened before, those who are listening for a number of times. No matter what your listener status, really, really lovely to be speaking to you this evening, uh, either live or in the soon-to-be-downloaded hit podcast. Great show for you this evening, I hope, and he says to himself, um, let's get going. Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Excellent. And my management of that particular jingle and the way in which I seamlessly both entered and departed from it as background music is indicative of just how good I am with technology at the moment. Um, As I entered my live studio about 15 minutes ago, I uploaded all my music ready and good to go and then pressed play on my jingles and none of them were working. And I thought, oh, dear me, right, okay, what's going on here? So quick, close everything down and let's reboot. Whilst waiting the inevitable few minutes for the reboot, I noticed that I'd plugged the wrong bit of my headphones into the wrong bit of the computer, which is why I couldn't hear any of the jingles. But thankfully, everything is working now. And good evening and welcome to the Thursday Night Twilight Show. Pleased to be back. Apologies to have missed you last week, but needs must when the devil himself drives. So we've got a few questions in the chat. Um, I'd love you to uh, perhaps give your opinions on. Um, uh, We're again exploring mentorship this evening, but also we've got a few things going on in education this week that are worthy of a mention. Um, My questions are, should mentors be given a curriculum of training to support their role? My second question, I'm going to be putting this to my special guest uh, in a few moments, is how much onus should be on the mentor to ensure they're fully up to date with their pedagogy and how much of the onus is on the provider? And finally, should the mentor choose the provider or the provider choose the mentor? And with exams starting, what was the most amusing thing that ever happened to you whilst you were in an exam? or invigilating. And so there's some things to consider. As we work through a summary of the week, let's start with our quotation. As oft we do, my quotation from this week is hammer check. Do, 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 hammer check. Um, Consciously, we teach what we know. Unconsciously, we teach who we are. And I think that can guide us quite interestingly, can't it, when it comes to the world of mentorship. It's been a busy week. Um, GCSE exams have started. Uh, Very, very best of luck to all of those involved in the GCSE examinations in this particular round and indeed in the A-level examinations. Hard work uh, to go all of a sudden to sit down in an exam hall on a hot day and keep up that pen stamina. That's the thing that I've noticed, particularly with my students at the moment, is that they don't have the stamina for writing anymore because they've had two years where they did everything on a computer. Um, So I really do wish them the very, very, very best of luck. We also have um, uh, a big week in the world of initial teacher training. Certainly, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for me in and around the first round of the accreditation bids for the new look criteria for ITT in 24-25. Significant number of providers and HEIs out there who are wondering what they need to do next time. Um, but have no fear, stay positive, and I'm sure that all will come right in the end. I am continue to call it initial teacher education Um just because perhaps I'm being difficult, perhaps I'm being pedantic, perhaps I'm being deliberately contrary, but all those things are up to me to do. So 
What I'm going to do now, I think, is without much further ado, invite in our very, very special guest for this evening. And I'm very much looking forward to this because um, um, I've missed the chap, I have to say. Uh, and uh, looking forward to catching up with the magnificent Adam Lewis. Um, Adam is a, uh, a fantastic pedagogue and a man who understands a significant more about the profession than I ever have or ever will do, despite his uh, un- unseemingly young um, appearance and his, uh, his his very few years spent on this earth. So when Adam's able to call in, I'll invite him to join us. And we're going to be talking about mentoring. We're going to be talking about mental curricula. We're going to be talking about his experiences as both mentor and as uh, leader. And so um, if I go down to my call in, I'm going to allow the magnificent Adam to call in. And hopefully, Adam, if you're able to uh, to do that, I've sent you an invite. And this might, are you, and you're now a speaker, Adam, apparently. Can you hear me? I can, sir. Can you hear me? Oh, your dulcet tones, Mr. Lewis, fill my ears. It's wonderful. I can hear you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I'm a bit bashful after your uh, incredible kind words there. It reminded (laughs) me of my uh, farewell speech that you did for me at my last school, sir. Oh, well, uh, it's all truly heartfelt, I promise you, Mr. Lewis. Um, uh, To give you a bit of background, everybody, when I first entered into senior leadership, um, gosh, five, six years ago now, um, Mr. Lewis uh, shaped me in his department. So although I was technically part of the senior team, I was still an English teacher at heart. And uh, Mr. Lewis was my English uh, head of department and uh, opened my eyes to a, a wealth of wonderful things, particularly in terms of the use of evidence to inform practice. It was something that I'd been dabbling in, but I'd never really got that far with it. And Adam was a, a step ahead. Um, and brought that to his colleagues throughout the department in a, a growing school in a challenging area. And um, I said in his leaving speech, uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to give it, that I'd never known a teacher who just knew his students so well um, and was able to offer such individual comment on each and every one of them. I felt it was uh, it was really fantastic. So, Adam, could you please update us on who you are, where you are and what you're doing at this moment in time? Of course. So... Um... Hello everyone, I'm Adam Lewis. Um, I'm currently residing in uh, Nor- inner city Norwich in Norfolk. Um, I moved to um, a new school um, at the start of, not this academic year, but last academic year um, and decided to not only start a new job, get a new house, um, but I have a baby at the same time, all within the space of, of the pandemic, which was uh, pretty intense. Um, but I'm in the role of uh, assistant head teacher for teaching and learning, CBD, um, and a few other bits attached to that. But um, the majority of my role focuses on on how to get um, staff developed as much as possible, I suppose. Excellent, and it's um it's it's the holy grail of senior leadership, isn't it? The teaching and learning and CPD. I think I I don't know why anyone would want to do any other aspect of senior leadership apart from those two things. And um, uh, how is the little one? He's he's not so little anymore. He's um, gained a few pounds, so he's now sleeping, <laughs> which is positive. But That's uh, good. yeah, a lot bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and they will continue to get bigger and more expensive, Adam. I promise you. Um, yeah, mine are, well, the, the youngest one is still not sleeping properly and he's three now. So uh, we'll get we'll get him right in the end. 
So it sounds fantastic. You're over in um, in Norwich. Are you attending um, Research Ed Norwich, perchance? I am. Our, our school is actually hosting it, sir. So I'll be. Is it? Is it you, there. sir? Oh, well, do you know I'm I'm speaking? Oh, fantastic! We will have to go for for a drink or something after. I should, I should we we think. must. We we must take a libation. Yeah, I've been very excitedly invited. It's my Research Ed debut, and I'm um, I'm okay. I'm speaking. So uh, whether or not anyone will be interested in what I've got to say is another matter, but that doesn't matter, does it? I can no, put no, it on my CV. No. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking about um, yeah, ITE and uh, communication, shared languages and sort of alignment, really, which is something I, I think really will sort of lead us a little bit into what I'd like to try and sort of pick your brains about today, especially with regards to, as you've alluded to, teacher development. Um, but before we do... Um, just because we're into that season now, um, the silly season of examinations when poor students have to sit in hot exam halls with the windows shut and look at life outside while they contemplate their futures. Um, what is the most amusing thing that ever happened to you while you were invigilating an exam? Goodness me. Um, so I remember in my, must have been my NQT year, in um, the northeast of England, hmm. and um, one of my students who was particularly uh, unruly um, set fire to the desk whilst he was in the <laughs> examination. So they had to uh, get the whole cohort out of the room to try and put the fire out. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't think we were going to go quite that that sort of that pyrotechnic. That is, I, I was just thinking, you know, maybe someone had tripped over, or you know, you played played one of those games of Pac Man. Can you ever play those games of Pac Man when you're invigilating? So you I'm, try and I'm, follow. Sorry, I'm more of a count how many balls you can spot in the nets at the top of the the gym type person. <laughs> the Pac Man, I, I miss those days. They were the good old days of invigilation when it didn't matter who was in the room. You could just walk up and down the aisles and try not to be too noisy with your shoes. Um, now, actually, uh, before we uh, before we move on, sir, and before I ask your opinion on a few important things, you, I think, during your NQT year, which you've just alluded to, there, were very privileged to work in rather a, a, a or with a few interesting folk, weren't you? Yeah. So um, I was lucky enough to work at it was a brilliant school up in the northeast of England, um, one of the biggest schools in the country. But um, whilst there, uh, I did um the, the the sort of english teachers who um were in my department included um andy sammons who's done a fair, fair few stuff around well-being written a few at least one book about well-being um who was a colleague there and then uh, my head of department was um rachel johnson who was um now leading um pixel and then um, even even before that, I was lucky enough prior to that in my PGC year to be um, mentored by Alex Quigley in, in York as well. So I had a, a decent start to my teaching career. I was very lucky to have, have, have lots of decent mentors around. I, I, I love the sort of self-effacing nature of the decent thing that being mentored by Alex Quigley. That's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and um, I met Alex Quigley once. I say met. I, I approached him on a platform outside Research Ed National about four years ago and uh, mentioned you, actually, and he remembered you, Adam, which I think is, is a lovely thing. Um, and so uh, clearly you, you made the right impression during those formative, uh, formative years of your career. Yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> a, he's a very nice 
one of the better word, a very nice bloke. Even even over the last couple of years, I've emailed him a, for a, a few favors here and there and advice, and he's he's passed it on. So he's a really nice bloke. Excellent, and that that I think sums it up, doesn't it? That ability for sort of for advice and collaboration to cross borders without hierarchy. I think that's really important. The fact that we, you know, people will share their expertise and it doesn't matter whether they're giving it to somebody who's been teaching 20 minutes or 20 years. It's about just that helping hand, I think, which is really important. So tell me a little bit then, Adam, about the um, the teaching and learning aspect that you've set up at your, uh, at your new alma mater. Um, what's your sort of what are your guiding principles for for teacher development in your current role? What what do you sort of use as a a basis? Um, so when when I came into role at, at the school, it, it was a school which had um, gone through many sort of iterations of changes of names and um, bringing schools together in terms of boys and girls grammar schools and things like that. Um, but had always been um, a school that had uh underachieved in, in the local community and uh, it's it's got many sort of generations and of uh families in the area who who see it as a as a failing school for want of a better word so hmm. i was sort of tasked with the idea of trying to um improve the staff as as, as much as i could within the time that I'm, i've been there to improve them so that actually it is a school which uh, the community is proud of and that the students are, are really proud of. Um, and um, the, the the way I sort of did that was for the first, um, I suppose, at least six months of my time there was was just to watch and learn and, and find out about as much as I could about the school. Um, because obviously it was the, it was the pandemic um with remote learning and all that entailed um at the school so it was a case of seeing and listening and um talking to, to staff um about how they saw their development rather than necessarily um changing things straight away yeah. um and we we, we launched a, a new cpd curriculum at the start of, of this academic year after after a time of sort of uh feeding back and drafting and consulting with staff um and our vision for the for the curriculum this year is is the dylan willing adage of um every every teacher's job is that they must try and get better it's not that any teacher uh shouldn't try and improve but that they, they it's almost a duty that they must try and improve in their job mm. um, because of how important a role we play within these communities <laughs> Excellent. Uh, it, it sounds amazing. I think the one thing there, Adam, which uh, I think possibly a lot of people would be jealous of, but I really wish that senior teams would find more time to do, is that option of seeing and listening and watching before getting started. I've, I've often found that a lot of, we, we know sort of, um, sort of me, 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 discovery learning, <laughs> um, and, and we, we giggle away, but then that's what we expect a lot of people new into middle and senior leadership roles to do, isn't it? We expect them to all of a sudden assume a mantle and learn their job on the on the go, um, without really having the time to to sit and to, as you say, to observe, to to watch, because the, there's a big difference, of course, between watching and observing, isn't there? And and to listen and to ask those questions. So, do you find actually that um, the pandemic helped that? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I I was um, at the same time as the moving the house, the new jobs, the new baby. During the pandemic, I was also 
starting um, a master's um, within leadership and, and management as well, um, which sort of, um, I suppose, prescribed certain ideas that I, it was a process within implementation that I had to go through. I, I couldn't just change things straight away. I had to um, explore and prepare and plan as opposed to action straight away. Um, and I think, although we had to take certain actions because of a pandemic straight away, such as um, training staff, making them feel comfortable with the, with the technology, certainly the, the broader um, CPD curriculum that we had planned, we, we were able to, to delay and not change things straight away with it, certainly. Yeah. And I think it is... It, even now, it's not something which is completely done after after one academic year. It's something which um, we've sort of planned over the next next three years or so, and hopefully beyond that, because it'll be about finding and learning things that have happened within the staff development to tweak and adapt it as we move forward. Yeah. Amazing. And uh, you uh, you keep using the word curriculum aligned to CPD, and I'm so pleased because it, it is a curriculum, isn't it? You have to plan it out. You have to look ahead, but you also have to be like curricular responsive, don't you, to need. You're going to have staff change. You're going to have different students to whom, you know, for whom the outcomes will be affected by the quality of the teaching. Um, and and so sort of in, in that regard, how does your your CPD curriculum intent manifest itself in practice what's the implementation like um do, do you know what sort of professional development opportunities to staff access and in what way um so we what we tried to do and i suppose again this is probably uh, heightened and quickened by the pandemic was we tried to make it um as flexible for staff as possible so rather than the the uh, cpd which would have taken place 10 years ago or even less time than that of everyone sat within a, <clears throat> a too hot main hall listening to someone um, spout about the new idea that they had we wanted staff to be able to access these materials when they could so any uh, cpd that was conducted was recorded so that if um, staff that came mid-year or staff that um, couldn't attend the, the meeting for um, being clinically vulnerable, for example, or, or um, some other reason, um, they were able to watch at a time of their choosing. So we, we try and restrict the amount of time that we say staff need to be in the building doing this thing at this time. Um, it's a more of a case of these are the uh, principles and ideas which we want you to, to uphold, and it's your choice where you, where you go with those. Yeah. Um, some of the other, other changes that we made was, um, as I said, in terms of the previous inset days um, being done to everyone, we tried to, to change it into more um, subject disciplines. So um, I think it's something like 85% of our CPD is now within some kind of team, um, which sort of aligns to the, the, it was a Tom Sherrington post about um, teams in CPD, whether it's a, subject team or a, a year team or a, a middle leadership team or a senior leadership team just to make sure that the the training that is going on is is suitable for those um, staff members um, and the the other I suppose main 
uh, adaptation that we made to try and make it a bit more flexible and adaptable to staff was to incorporate um, flexible learning, online learning that they could do at home. So yeah. rather than um, trying to make up our own teaching and learning framework based on what we thought would work, we, we went on what what was evidence. So um, we used the um, Great Teaching Toolkit by um, Professor Ko and, 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 yep. uh, and Kime. And um, that allows staff to work on the dimension and aspect of their teaching that they're wanting to develop um, with feedback mechanisms from students, which are evidenced um, in what the students are learning rather than necessarily what teachers or senior leaders are, are suggesting is being learned. Yeah. Um, and that allows staff to, to decide what they want to do, when they want to do, in in the way that they want to be so i mean it sounds i mean i I imagine there's people out there listening or people who are listening to a recording of this that are just sort of starting to write their application letters it sounds a fantastic model i I, what i love about the model is the the built-in autonomy um that goes with it there's there's one size fits very few as we know um but also that element as you, you you sort of answered a question for me in terms of subjects and discipline specific um, so do you find sort of from an initial teacher perspective that, um, uh, for, I mean, in terms of initial, initially teaching teachers, that getting people to understand stuff within their subject domain is, is one of the key things? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, again, going back to what you said about autonomy, it, what we didn't want to do was say, this is a standard rule for everyone. You must go and do it. Um, what we What we tried to do was say these are um our 12 principles of 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 teaching and strategies which um seem to work within our context of our students and in our setting um and this is the research and evidence that backs these strategies up and then um what subject teams could then do is then adapt those strategies to their their subjects um so for example one one of the strategies that we looked at was the idea of um, hinge questions being a yep. crucial um, element for, for staff to be able to judge whether students have understood, understood the concept or not. Um, but a hinge question in English is uh, a lot more different to a hinge question in, in science. And I think um, I'm no expert in the construction of hinge questions in science and the, the uh, associated pedagogical subject content knowledge so uh, my colleagues in those science departments are much much better in in deciding those so it was uh, one one line that we've always been wary of I suppose with that is is the idea of lethal mutations and staff Mm -hmm. taking that idea and twisting it and contorting it into something which wasn't what the original evidence and research said Um, but the I suppose mechanisms that we've put in place in order to to check those things and the discussions that we've had with those staff members means that's not been the case. Yeah, that I think that monitoring is important, isn't it? I mean, you you touch on uh, I've often found within group settings, 
you also have to teach the appropriate behaviours and skills associated with group work and collaborative and collegial approaches, don't you, alongside the, the content that you want to be discussed. So you could take, as you say, let's take hinge questions and you could take the concept and you could talk people through let you know the, the process for designing a good hinge and at its point in, in a lesson. And then you go away and say, right, in your departments, have a look at this. But if that department itself is not perhaps a fully functioning and positively collaborative environment, um, there's always, as you say, that danger of the lethal mutation. But there's also the danger of the sort of um, the myth of collaboration, you know, that 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 um, this thing glimpsed in the aftermath of successful implementation. But actually, you know, is that collaboration enabling teachers to get better or, or is it in fact just lots of people doing the same thing at the same time? I mean, how do you how do you sort of counter or, or teach those soft skills associated with collaboration as well? That's a really good question. Um, and it was something <laughs> which I pondered for a very long time. So luckily, um, I was um, I'm involved with the TDT network within um Norwich as well, um, so yeah. I did an associateship with, with that course, and um, that enabled me to sort of discuss that that question, which I, I pondered for a long, long time, with like-minded <laughs> colleagues in similar positions in in quite similar contexts um, to me. So yeah. the the way, and and they had uh, this problem themselves, and it's it's how do you align um, those meetings and the leadership within those teams to what you want the leadership and the development of staff um whole school yeah um and the way that we sort of went about it was was to give um those middle leaders the autonomy of being able to um adapt those strategies to the subjects and to work on their um curriculum um in the way that they wanted to but but what we did was scaffold um for those who were perhaps newer to their positions or, um, as you said, weren't necessarily a fully functioning uh, autonomous team. So um, th those scaffolds were, were simply documents to almost guiding questions that would get them to have the kind of conversations and um, collaboration which we, we wanted as opposed to go off and try and improve your curriculum or go off and try and... <laughs> um, adapt this this strategy to your subject because um we knew that actually um some some staff members whether you're whether you're a middle leader or, or a teacher you're you're going to need some support in in those positions and those those middle leaders who were had been in post a lot longer and had fantastic teams already set up then they could use those scaffolds if needed but were also able to to go um in their own direction i suppose yeah Excellent. I mean, it, it is that I've been doing a lot of sort of thinking and looking into sort of collaboration at the moment, particularly around sort of it, often in, in, in initial teacher education or, or perhaps early career stuff. And we'll we'll open that can of worms in a moment. But um, just in terms of the, these these groups of people that are placed together and encouraged to, to have a conversation, they're encouraged to talk about and reflect. But unless there's a, a genuine purpose behind the reflection or unless there's I think there has to be a complete absence of hierarchy, doesn't there as well? Because often, you know, you'll dilute the collaboration focus and just sort of the uncertainty of the relationships and the sort of inherent, perhaps, you know, lack of trust that that people have because they feel there's some sort of perceived threat in, in the these hierarchies within these groups. 
um, that can be quite hard to to counter, especially if you're inexperienced, can't it? You're sitting around a table debating pedagogy in, in, with a specific focus, but you know that as part of your department, you've got a member of SLT, you've got a head of year, you've got a you, you know got a vastly experienced teacher, and then you've got you, you know yourself who's been teaching a, a year or two. So how do we counter that sort of hierarchy that's inherent within collaborative work as well? Can it be successful? Um, I think it's incredibly difficult to start off with because there's mm. there's always going to be, um, even if not conscious, subconscious um, feelings and attitudes of um, hierarchy within a team um, just because of a nature of, of human human beings. Yeah. Um, but the the... I suppose that that comes from the culture and environment, which is is um, designed and promoted within within the school. So that it doesn't matter whether you are um, a um, PGT student who's there for um, a couple of months, or whether you are um, a uh, senior member of staff who's been there twenty years, or whether you are a member of SLT, or whether you um, are a middle leader, but that viewpoints are all welcomed. Um, I re- recently read the um, Matthew Syed book around um, diversity of teams, and yeah. it, it sort of, I suppose, pushed me onto thinking that actually, if you have a team who are completely agreeing on every single point all the time, then that's not a fully functioning team because you're only going to have that one viewpoint as opposed to um different things to actually iron out the problems and um issues with um a curriculum or an, a lesson or an idea mm. and the more divergent thinking that is within a team um the better actually yeah and you you talk there about sort of uh, problems and i think that's important isn't it that we mustn't set out on anything until we're sure what you know the success is going to look like what what outcomes we want from this as opposed to sort of i've talked a little bit in recent editions about syllogistic leadership which is a term i think i've made up uh, but i might not have done um you know something must be done this is something therefore we must do it um it's much more about actually having that that sound reasoning that supports you know you've got an educational aim and therefore you can support that with your research evidence and your your pedagogical principles and and that then sort of puts at the heart of I suppose collaboration, collaboration, and of culture. You've talked about there. The heart of that becomes educational outcomes, doesn't it? As opposed to personal relationships and and um, you know, sort of see personal progress. I suppose as teacher, would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for me, the the ultimate aim all the time is is those student outcomes, and all, although they're they're all encompassing, um, without that staff development of them getting better, you're not going to get those those student outcomes to be better by the end of the day. Um, And I think um, in order for those student outcomes to to improve over time, unless you've got that um, collaboration and working environment where there is trust and there is um, psychological safety within within the teams, then um, people are going to to not feel... um, I suppose trust in their colleagues so won't necessarily want to make their their feelings known if if they feel like they can't be vulnerable with each other and um be transparent and honest um then it often becomes quite a closed closed um not developing culture 
So mm. I think that the, the the feedback mechanisms that you create within that culture to allow all your staff, what what whatever role they have, and to have as many different um, avenues and ways that staff can feedback is is incredibly important because um, if even if staff don't feel and don't perceive that they can feedback honestly then that's going to make um it more of a closed culture definitely and as you say i mean tdt have done some fantastic work around culture and and um you know i've, I've always been a huge fan of david weston and and everything that he's looked at in regards to to cultures and identities and um you know fullen and hargreaves and all of their work they've done around culture i suppose the ultimate thing really is to ensure that we've got sort of more cola and less done in kruger is is that i suppose the uh, the ultimate aim of professional development more of the cola effect and less of the done in kruger yeah um, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's just write that on the posters um to attract people to the school from day one so, sir, I'm going to I'm going to move us into um, what I'd endeavoured might be the sort of focus for this evening. But it's been an absolute pleasure just already to hear those wonderful things that are going on. Um, a lot of what I'm, I'm trying to do is just to raise the profile of mentoring. And in particular, the, the, the fact that I believe ultimately it is a vocation. It might be a sub-vocation within teaching, but it is a vocation. Now, I've known you to be an exceptionally successful mentor with very different teachers I just wonder what your your initial sort of experiences of mentoring are in terms of whether or not it's a role that you enjoy and what you get from it as well as what you feel you bring to it. Golly gosh. Okay, so um, let me take one question at a time, I suppose. So first one in terms of whether I enjoy it. I, I love mentoring. I, I find it one of the most... Um, valuable things to be able to see and work with um staff entering the profession um and as you say i've I've worked with ones who've come straight from oxbridge i've worked with some someone who's had um a career of 20 30 years in publishing i've worked with um ones who've been at various different schools and uh, it hasn't worked out for them. So this is the school and mentor that they're trying out now. And uh, I think it, it, it opened, um, opened up my eyes in, in understanding how important it is to get the right mentor um, and the right people to mentor within education, because um, just my own personal experience i had one mentor during I'd, I'd went down the pgce route and i had one mentor who nearly turned me off continuing ed, in education right. um luckily it was my short placement but the, the the amount of time and uh relationship that that didn't develop between <laughs> us um, nearly put me off and, and luckily um on my second placement i had one of the best mentors that i could possibly imagine of having yeah and uh, i think and, it, and this goes for for every role i suppose but especially with mentoring if you're able to find the models on who you want to take things from and even even 
the non-models and what you don't want to be like, I think is incredibly important because yeah. regardless of who I work with, I want them to feel like they can improve and get better. And that's whether I get on with them or not, is whether, yeah. I, whether I like them or not. I, I want to improve every single staff member that I work with. And um, whether that's through the uh, middle leaders um, that I might be line managing now or um, the the uh, initial teachers, which which I'm sort of um, heading up with our, as, a, as an induction tutor, it, it, it's so important that the uh, people within our profession have the right people to guide them in the way that they want. Um, what was what was the second part of your question, sir? Um, that's a very good question in itself, Adam. I can't remember exactly what it was now. I think it was more around. I mean, what you said in in terms of your experiences and 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 what? No, that was it. It was what you um gain from the role, and then also what you think you bring to it. Okay, so in terms of gaining from the role, I I think it sets it sets people up to learn how to deal with a variety of people. If you are um, solely a teacher without any any other aspect um, of leadership or mentoring or anything else, then it can be quite an isolating role because you you it depends of course on the school and and, and the team that teams that you're working in, but it can be uh, incredibly isolating being within your own classroom just working and talking to the students for the majority of your time. Um, whereas the, the the mentor needs to learn to how to guide and coach and work with a variety of different people um, and and the needs that those individuals have just like i suppose a teacher with with the students within their classroom needs to learn about what what makes them tick um and the things that i've gained from it is uh, being able to um understand the different needs that people have and what what makes them tick Um, and uh, the one guiding principle i've had with with anyone that i've mentored is is to listen is to to listen first and um what whatever next actions come from from mentoring to to make sure that their voice is heard Um, because without that uh, mentor there it can be incredibly um difficult start for for um, teachers starting off in the profession yeah definitely so and that 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 need to have that that empathetic ear is is so important isn't it as you say to create and go back to that word culture i suppose that culture of accepted failure and and the the acknowledgement that you know learning to teach is hard and i mean you alluded to dylan william earlier and i mean he will say always won't he that you know it's one of the jobs where you fail every day and if you didn't think you failed that day, then you weren't paying attention. But you, uh, <laughs> you, you continue to get better at it. We have to build that culture in trainee teachers from the outset, don't we? It's okay to get it wrong. It's okay to to find it difficult. Um, that's why you know the, the mentor exists in that way. In essence, is it to is to help and to support. Absolutely, um, and I think it, it can be it can be incredibly difficult for for starting teachers to to understand that because they they. As I said, they might have come from from Oxbridge. They might have come from a successful career elsewhere, and then to come in where you are failing in a myriad of ways in multiple um, mistakes, um, 
during a minute, never mind a lesson, never mind a day, is incredibly heart heartbreaking, in all honesty. Yeah. And to be able to, to, to reassure and say, actually, this is the process which will make you a better teacher to, to be able to understand where those mistakes have been made and what you can do next time to, to ensure that it doesn't happen is, is incredibly useful. Yeah, hugely. And um, I mean, you, you talk, so you're currently induction tutor, yes, in your, in your, your school as well. Yeah, so we have, um, we've got a variety of different, uh, um, a link with the UEA for the PGC. Uh, we yep. have, yep. Um, oh, goodness me, uh, the SKIT um, students. So we've got a link there. And we've obviously got um, ECT year ones at the moment. So yep. um, something that both me and the, uh, well, the whole staff, never, never mind just their teacher, incredibly proud of, of the school is that a lot of our staff have come through, um, our recruitment has come through um, those staff members initially doing um, their trainee teaching with us. So yeah, yeah. they, um, historically at the school, um, because of what I alluded to yes, earlier about um, the context of it and, and it being... Um, consistently failing over over generations, they they hear about the school and think, goodness, I I I am really scared about going to this school about these stories I'm hearing, and actually when they arrive and um, see the kind of culture that we're developing and the kinds of students that we're working with and the amazing opportunities that we have there, they absolutely love it and, and want to stay, and um, the fact that we're able to to recruit heavily from that area when we need to do so is is um really really uh yeah certainly makes us proud anyway fantastic and so um from you know, with your induction tutor hat on because uh, this I, I've had juggled this and this is an interesting one because you you have to as induction tutor have a working knowledge of a range of different providers and their ethoses and approaches but also you have to the sort of the practical aspect of releasing your chosen mentors to be trained by their respective providers with whom they're working and that could be you know they've worked with the same provider for a number of years or they've mentored for one provider and not for another which is something i often find oh i've been a mentor before but not for you um what as induction tutor what training do you want your mentors to be offered by their providers and what are you happy that you will do in school and that is a good question as well um i suppose yeah, the diff difficulty that we have is that we have a, a variety of different routes into our school. So the the amount of time that we have to release, um, not only for the mentors to do the training, but actually the amount of time that the um, teacher trainee teachers are with students, which means they're not don't have the usual classroom teacher, is um, something which which we're sort of considering next year because it is um quite a huge burden of time that 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 we have to release them for and it's it's obviously um costed and things like that but it's also um the the thing that doesn't get considered a lot of time is the, the amount of times that those students are missing out on in their classroom when the mentors are going out on that training yeah um but I think within the frameworks that currently exist, the, the, 
the bit that excites me most, I suppose, in comparison to um, training from from certainly when I did it is is the um, uh, the golden thread which which runs <laughs> through um, all the aspects of training. So whether it is the the initial teacher training um, that that training teachers do, or whether it's the um, NPQ um, for literacy lead, or whether it's the NPQ for executive heads, there, there seems to be a coherency to the whole program, which wasn't there before. Yeah. Um, and, and for me as an induction tutor, the, the aspects which make my life easier and I think make the mentor's life a lot easier is for the language and uh i suppose the the strategies that those mentors are going to be using whilst mentoring um to be consistent across all the routes because uh, where where difficulty sometimes arises <laughs> even even just the term mentor, mentoring if that is different in all the different routes then that makes it incredibly difficult for someone who's going from uh, mentoring in Teach First to, to mentoring in um, a PGC student, for example. Yeah. Um, and for them to be able to adjust to that, I mean, uh, for example, we've we've got one member of staff who has had to train mid-year as a mentor because we've recruited um, an ECT mid-year. And they've been doing um, skip training for the last few years in terms of mentoring. Um, and they've had to go through a complete different induction program <laughs> simply to get adjusted to the software um, that they're going to be using, never mind the um, curriculum of training to develop them as a mentor as such. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's where um, the major difficulties lie with, with the, the mentoring and training of initial teachers at the moment is that um, a staff member could be going through various different roles in their mentoring and easily become confused over over which way is the right way yeah yeah and i think uh, you hit upon it exactly adam and i agree entirely i mean one thing um shameless plug i've just had a, i've got have you got your imp copy of impact magazine yet you'll 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 see i'm i'm, I'm there um, already read it, sir. Already read it. Oh, sir, thank you. Um, and um, yeah, I think this this sort of I, I I've got my head hung up on this concept of a Tower of Babel at the moment. This is my current analogy that I like to use in and around teacher development because we've got this sort of the 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 myth is the assumption that it's taken place, and if as exactly as you say, the language. Um, generally, the classroom practice, what makes effective teaching physically, practically, is not that divergent across multiple settings, but the language used to evaluate it often is, and, and also the language used to set the targets associated with increase, you know, future development. And uh, you know, I, I have my, my, my issues with the, the core content and early career frameworks, but I also have a, an understanding of at their heart a sort of a lowest common denominator of language, isn't it? If, if everybody is working on, on that terminology and with those ideas of the sort of declarative learn that and the procedural learn how to's, the declarative aspects can very much become that sort of shared glossary. And then the learn how to's can become, they can be far more context specific, can't they? 
absolutely. And I think I think that that is where the framework will develop and work and flourish more over the next few years, as opposed to this year. I think um, mentors and and initial teachers are are adapting to those new things and some of the criticisms that i've heard leveled at it is that it doesn't necessarily enable um training teachers to be able to be stretched in particular particularly mm. if they're going through um almost jumping through hoops i suppose but i think as um we have more years of being able to use it and adapting it and tweaking it as we go then um those kind of uh initial teacher tra- initial teacher teachers and <laughs> their mentors will be able to see how they are able to stretch and push um those teachers in those positions yeah and it's it's that as you say that stretch and that push and that appropriate level of challenge whilst all the time i think i think something i've certainly found and i've probably mentioned this before i say the same thing over and over again in different ways um, for most of my life, in all honesty, but um, that you, you know, you someone could have been teaching twenty five years and is doing everything that current, you know, the current language of pedagogy indicates is a good thing, um, but unless they're calling it the same thing as their trainee, um, there's this sort of uh, this disconnect between, you know, the the dialogue cannot take place appropriately because neither of them are saying the same thing, um, and yet they both mean the same thing. They're just calling it different things. And I suppose there's there's that that aspect of the early career framework that does allow for that alignment and does allow for that um, that sort of avoidance of, of certainly what I've found. And again, um, I'm sure you've experienced and uh, I'd love to know how you counteracted situations whereby you've got a trainee being mentored. <clears throat> but because we are, of course, working in secondary environments, largely, although the mentor is, is a dedicated um, mentor, if you've got a supernumerary trainee who's actually teaching a timetable across a range of teachers, they're going to get feedback from a lot of different places, aren't they? Um, so how do we, what what role do you think the, induc- the induction tutor and indeed the respective providers have to have in ensuring that the feedback the trainee gets is appropriate and balanced and isn't confusing them? Um, <coughs> I suppose... Um, one thing, um, which, which I've sort of tried to encourage in any, any time I've, I've, I've mentored is, is to tell those that I've mentored that you will be getting, um, a billion bits of advice whilst you're in this job and a billion bits of, um, suggestions of what to do differently and to take all those bits of advice and, and suggestions with a pinch of salt, because, (laughs) But for want of a better word, every, everyone's got got an opinion on on teaching, haven't they? Every, everyone yeah. has experienced education, so they, they they feel and think that they know best about it. So, um, it's more more than anything, I I think is is trying to get them to understand that um, what what you uh, do within the classroom or what, what those those micro decisions that you make, you want to base those as much as you can upon the evidence and research of what works um, that that you know about, but also within the context of the school that you're working in. And I think that's something which is incredibly, incredibly difficult and challenging for, for uh, starting teachers to go through is, is to work in uh, 
different schools where they won't necessarily understand the context and um, aspects of a school as much as someone who had, who's worked in education for a long time or even more so worked in that school for a long time. Yeah. And I think uh, for, for those teachers to be able to, to understand that as you work your way through the different schools that you're going to be working in, you need to understand that lots of people are going to be suggesting things to you, but you know yourself better than anyone else in <laughs> the classroom. And yeah. um, I, I've, I've always thought that the um, best, most important characteristic for any um, trainee teacher and in fact teacher and in fact senior leader is the ability to be able to reflect accurately. Because yeah. if you have <clears throat> a naive or misconstrued point of view of, of what you're doing within the classroom, then it becomes uh, very difficult to be able to improve and to be able to, to get better as a teacher. Um, yeah. And I think the more mechanisms and aspects that they can have to be able to feedback on their teaching, the better, but to be able to understand that all those aspects and mechanisms have their faults. So even stuff like, um, uh, we've we've in recently introduced rec recording um, lessons. Yeah. So whether it's a staff uh, member who's been there a long time or an initial teacher trainer, they, they, they have the opportunity to be able to, to record their lesson. And that gives a really useful piece of evidence and data for them to be able to, to make those judgments about how to and reflect on how to improve their teaching. But again, that is there is faults with that data and that it is um, a recorded lesson where the students might be acting in a completely different way to when <laughs> that software and hardware isn't in the classroom. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's about enabling those starting teachers to be able to reflect accurately with the data that they have. Yeah, I think uh, you. I, I like your point about recorded um, lessons. I think I remember, you know, back as a, a young cricket uh, player, being watching my net session having been recorded, and then I was I was talked back through it as to well, you know, you should have moved here, you should have done that there, this that, and it was horrible. Um, but then you also think it it is a, a really useful tool for reflection if the person is ready to reflect. But also, you you touch on what I think is really important, and one of the many. Um, book titles that I've scribbled down over the years of things that I think I must search more into and, and try and write a book about is some um, Hawthorne effects in observation, you know, that very obvious alteration of behavior because we know we're being watched. And so, the, you know, that argument comes here, you know, if that recorded lesson, are the kids being different because the camera's in the room? However, you know, small the technology, are they being different? And therefore, is this a, a valid, as you say, set of data from which we can draw conclusions? I think Again, there's, there's one of the, uh, that's the joy of education, isn't it? Insurmountable problems on a daily basis, yeah. um, <laughs> which is why we love it. So, um, Adam, I'm very conscious of the amount of time I've kept you. So I'm, I, I'm going to I'm just sort of going to go to to one more thing, really. And, and this isn't meant to this isn't designed to catch you out in any way. I'm just interested because um, you I'm, I'm sure you and I would agree that the best way to go about solving a problem is to know what success looks like before you start and to know what it is that you're endeavouring to achieve. And we know that the goal of teacher development, professional development, although however lengthy the process, is ultimately to create a good teacher, isn't it? An effective teacher. Now, I've been reading a lot of the work of um, Fred Corthigan 
or course the gin, I'm not quite sure whether uh, the pronunciation on the G, around um, teacher education, teacher development. And there's a wonderful paper he wrote called In Search of the Essence of a Good Teacher um, around more holistic approaches to teacher education. And he asks two questions that determine the pedagogy of teacher education. The second question is how can we help people to become good teachers? But the first question he asks is what are the essential qualities of a good teacher? Now, guiding people towards the essential qualities is then the goal of the professional development. What, in your opinion, and what do you think makes, or what are those essential qualities of a good teacher? It's, it's the ultimate question, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of sort of research and evidence that, that I could throw out to you in terms of, yeah, what, what, what I talked about before with a with great teaching toolkit and the, the yeah. dimensions and what. I love that. I love the great teaching toolkit. I think it's fantastic. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, to, to make it a bit more simpler, I would dial it down to, to two absolutely key fundamental characteristics. And one is the ability to be able to reflect on your, your teaching and doing that honestly, transparently and um, uh, with the, the drive in mind to, tr to try and improve that teaching. Yeah, because um, that's one of the reasons why why we get into this profession because it is so complex and because you are making more decisions than an airline pilot and um, <laughs> it's never a perfect lesson um, and you can always improve upon some aspects and if you're able to reflect without um someone else within the room giving you suggestions of feedback or um, whether you're able to um, improve through watching yourself or whether you're able to improve with someone guiding you and, and suggesting things that's that's the ultimate goal so that's that's my number one characteristic and i think that yep. the second aspect which makes a great teacher is um the ability to to, to build relationships i i i struggle to think of any uh colleague that i have ever worked with who doesn't like children um i've <laughs> i've i pain to think about over years of is, is there any anyone and there was some who i thought maybe when i was at school and i was teaching i thought no you really don't like anyone but but i i i think you've got to want to work with children and build those relationships with them there's there's a reason why we are going into children education as opposed to um adult education and as much as i enjoy um doing staff development improving them that way um we're still talking about the aspects of building those relationships with students and i think if you are someone who struggles to build those relationships with students it's something which i think is really really difficult and complex and time consuming to be able to get someone out of that um, and to be able to teach them how to build relationships <laughs> with students. I think it's, it's so much easier to be able to tell someone how, what makes a good uh, subject curriculum or how to ask effective questions or how to build routines within a lesson. But if you're someone who doesn't want to 
be friendly and warm to 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 children, then you're probably in the wrong profession. Honestly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, those those two are the ultimate, I'd say. Yeah, and I I think that is an absolutely wonderful summation of what's going to make an effective teacher. Um, Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a, 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 that hour's flown by, and thank you so so much for giving up your time. I know you're a, a ridiculously busy man, and um, it's been it's been a pleasure both personally to catch up, but also professionally to to really hear your responses there and and to to dig into those topics. Um, hopefully, um, I'll see you at Research Ed Norwich, and um, there'll be a you know a libation or two after the event. Absolutely, sir. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. It's good to catch up, and I look forward to um, buying you a drink in Norwich and showing you the sights. Fantastic, especially the pedestrianisation around the city centre. Yeah, can't be best. Um, can't be best. Well, of course. <laughs> and look after yourself, my friend. Take care. All right. Cheers, sir. Bye bye. Fantastic. Um, so how wonderful everybody that was the fantastic Adam Lewis um, and I strongly recommend that if you uh, you aren't already um, familiar with Adam or his work then you've got an opportunity to get to know uh, such a, a wonderfully humble professional but somebody with that that final answer I think really gives an insight in doesn't it into into what Adam holds dear the ability to reflect and the ability to build relationships and those are the core aspects of any professional in teaching. Um, whether it's those relationships, as Adam said, with the students, but also those collegial relationships with those around you and and that ability to to humbly and um, accurately reflect on what has gone, but also acknowledging that every day is going to be a better version of what you were yesterday. I do think that's a really, really vital aspect of what it is that we do. So that's been an absolutely fantastic first hour. And thank you to those that have been tuning in and those that I hope have enjoyed this via a recorded version. We're now going to take a, a short break for the news. And when we return, we're going to just do our traditional weekly delve into an aspect of research and evidence. And keeping it along the line of teacher development, we're going to be looking at the work of Furlong and Maynard. So let's uh, take a break for the news. And I'll hopefully um, see you here and sense you back in around about six minutes time. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible.
stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to Program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half term and join me for two days and receive up to £1,360 in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. schools in Aberdeenshire have been awarded an eco-schools green flag by environmental charity Keep Scotland Beautiful. The international award recognises nurseries and schools which have demonstrated a commitment to the eco-schools Scotland programme and over two years have engaged their whole school community in local climate action. All the schools engaged in a range of litter busting and climate action activities, including litter picks, litter surveys, recycling and community cleanups. Through the EcoSchools Scotland programme, Keep Scotland Beautiful aims to make action to tackle climate change and environmental awareness an intrinsic part of the life and ethos of schools for both pupils and staff. Scotland's Education Secretary, Shirley Ann Somerville, has refused to say when the gap between rich and poor school pupils will be eliminated, prompting claims that the original target of 2026 has been dropped. Ms Somerville said that narrowing the gap had always been a long-term project, which had been made more difficult by the Covid pandemic and the rising cost of living. She said... I am not going to set an arbitrary date when the attainment gap will be closed, particularly so close to the experiences we are still having with the pandemic. It is absolutely the defining mission of this government to close the poverty-related attainment gap. It has always been a long-term project. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. And 
welcome back. Um, I'm getting a little bit better at managing that not particularly seamless transition from the pre-recorded news output to uh, a return back to me live. Um, I promise that I will endeavour to get better as my uh, tenure here on uh, the Thursday Twilight for Teacher Talk Radio continues. Hopefully it will. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. If you're decided that you've downloaded the podcast and then you're deliberately going to skip to uh, 67 minutes and 28 seconds because you're not fancying the first hour, um, then you've missed an absolute treat. I was joined by the uh, the really rather wonderful Mr. Adam Lewis, um, who I'm uh, very uh, pl proud and pleased to have worked with. Um, and he was filling us in on where he is now and, and the fantastic opportunities that he's got, but also the cultures that he's endeavouring to create around professional learning and also those things around mentorship and teacher development that he holds dear and that he considers to be important. Um, so as is traditional in this uh, second half of the show, or much not even second half, the last last phase really of the show, I like to take a little bit of a, a look at some an area of, of research evidence, an area of interest of mine, um, but one that hopefully links to what has gone before. And uh, my focal point for the discussion we're about to have with myself in a few minutes is the work of Furlong and Maynard around the five stages of teacher development. OK, now um, I do like to use my quotations, as you know, if you're a uh, an avid listener or a uh, a twilight, a Thursday twilight groupie. Um, and I'm going back a few, uh, just a mere 118 years to Dewey um, tonight and, and Dewey talking about teacher development. And I'm going to just read you a paragraph. Now, I know that doesn't sound like absolutely scintillating radio experience, but I promise you it's worth listening to. I think so anyway. Um, as Dewey here, 118 years ago, talks about developing teachers. He says that from one point of view, the aim is to form and equip the actual teacher. The aim is immediately as well as ultimately practical. From the other point of view, the immediate aim, the way of getting at the ultimate aim, is to supply the intellectual method and material of good workmanship, instead of making on the spot, as it were, an efficient workman. Practice work thus considered is administered primarily with reference to the intellectual reactions it incites, giving the student a better hold upon the educational significance of the subject matter he is acquiring and of the science, philosophy and history of education. And that's Dewey back 120 years ago talking about the difference between theory and practice and the, the movement between those two very connected and yet very disparate fields. Um, everything makes sense on paper and nothing therefore makes sense in the classroom or vice versa. And certainly one thing that I've found as I try and navigate myself on an almost daily basis around the, the various different elements of advice that I draw from research evidence. Adam talked earlier on about the different voices and the hundreds of bits of advice that any trainee teacher will get throughout their career. I'm a bit of a sucker for reading things and thinking, oh, that sounds good. That sounds interesting. That's fantastic. I love, I love the wording there. I love the concept. I, I love the insight. But then because of that, what's happening is that I start to prioritise a number of different things that I want to incorporate within my practice. I want to explore the theory. I want to think if that theory does indeed manifest in practice in the way I think it should. But because I've got so many of these going on, what's happening is that when everything's a priority, nothing is. And so I'm in danger of sort of creating a sort of confused stagnation in my own practice, whereby I've got so many options that I want to explore, I end up doing none of them. Um, and indeed, just sort of drip along my merry little way, <laughs> plodding the same pedagogical furrow. Um, so I think the 
conscious reflection on theory through practice is a vital part of teacher development. And that can be enabled and that can be uh, acculturated by the mentor. And the mentor, I think, has the opportunity to not only utilise their own experience for the benefit of others, but also to enhance their own experience through the experience of others. And to be sitting in a position of privilege every time they have the opportunity to observe their charge um, teach their lesson or, or, or manage their classroom environment. And so I think for me, really considering how we can create effective teachers through an acknowledgement of the different elements of humanity that, that, that exist within them. Um, so the work of Furlong and Maynard, um, if you're not familiar with it, um, they are talking essentially um, of the five stages of pre-service teacher learning. Um, and this is, we're back in 1995 when, when this particular um, element is, is debated. So we're back in the halcyon days of the mid-90s, um, uh, a fine time for all, all right, when, when Tamagotchis were at every turn. Uh, and Furlong and Maynard talk about five stages, and this is all within essentially one year because we're, we're adopting a term, they, they use the term pre-service. We would understand that to be um, uh, in the process of initial teacher education. Uh, so stage one of Furlong and Maynard's model is that of early idealism, essentially where teaching and learning are viewed in a, a relatively simplistic way because there is, there is little sort of existing schema on which to, to develop. These teachers maintain relationships with pupils is a crucial factor in determining their effectiveness as teachers. Um, so they believe that, um, as, as Adam cited earlier on, that the relationships formed are, are the key. Um, and they have this ide idealistic view of a teacher linked very much to wanting their own personalities to emerge. And uh, it's often found, or certainly Furlong and Maynard found, that um, these idealised beliefs or images about teaching and learning at that point are often seemingly influenced by students' own histories, their own experience as a pupil, um, the fact that they have clear memories of what for the, you know, who for them were their significant teachers. And it, it turned out during the course of Furlong and Maynard's research that actually um, these student teachers found it difficult to recall anything about what or how they'd been taught, but rather it was the personality of the teacher and the relationship they established with them as pupils that was deemed to be the significant factor. Um, and so where teachers are remembered to be you know, terrifying or teachers are remembered to be scary or, or moody or disengaged, then the, the pre-service teacher with that memory actively rails against that particular manifestation and they deliberately try not to be that person. Um, and um, one of the students in their research commented that, that one very strict teacher probably had no idea of how frightened um, the pupil was. Um, and, and that's actually in, in doing so that's affected the trainee teacher themselves as they begin to consider what sort of identity they want to carve out for themselves. Um, I remember talking to a, a trainee a couple of years ago about this and how one thing that it's difficult to, to understand for a trainee teacher in particular is how hard some people genuinely find school um, because we go into teaching with largely positive experiences and positive memories of our own education. We wouldn't be drawn back to something that had caused us great trauma as a child. And so we wouldn't necessarily have an empathetic handle on what it is like to find school a difficult and challenging place. So I think that's an interesting one. Furlong and Maynard moved this through from a point of early idealism. Stage two 
for them is personal survival. And again, I think we've all been there. And if we are qualified teachers or not, we reflect on a point of after our initial sort of idealistic approach to our newfound vocation or new role, new job, new opportunity, we do enter this stage of personal survival. We are, as Furlong and Maynard put it with the pre-service teachers, reactive rather than proactive. Essentially, the situation is defined by the students in this um, in this stage, not by the teacher. The teacher doesn't have a toolkit of responsiveness um, so what we have instead is a, uh, a point of a tendency of, of the pre-service teacher to emulate the mentor's style. Um, and we have this, the, the ideal teacher they wanted to be is essentially being replaced by the teacher they've become in order to survive. So it is a, an act of survival, not an act of sort of, um, I suppose, again, carving out a professional identity. We move then from Furlong and Maynard into their third stage, which they call the dealing with difficulties stage. Um, and essentially what happens here is that the pre-service teacher, the initial teacher edu- uh, the initial teacher trainee, um, is trying to mimic what they believe to be teacher behaviour. They're trying to gain a sort of procedural understanding of what it means to be a teacher. Um, essentially for many, Furlong and Maynard found in particular that for many pre-service teachers, their worth as a teacher and as a person was judged by how far the pupils appeared to like them still. So it was about personalities, but also um, they'd spend hours planning. Um, the, the, the They still seem reluctant to differentiate um, the work they devised in terms of pupil ability. So it's very much more about whether or not I'm being liked by my, my, uh, my students, not am I doing the right thing for them from an academic um, and therefore an outcomes perspective. And again, there's many a difficulty that a trainee teacher will encounter and that, again, I suppose, is the role of the mentor to be able to support them, to um, to help them and to guide them and to to open the door for them uh, and, and then allow those trainees to, once that door is opened, go through it um, to sort of sort of quote the matrix, although I don't necessarily intend to do so. Um, Furlong and Maynard's fourth stage, they refer to this as hitting a plateau. Now, two or three, maybe even four or five weeks ago now, when I had the uh, the privilege and pleasure to talk to, to Mike Hobbis on this particular show, we talked about stagnation and plateaus in teacher development. But here, Furlong and Maynard address this within the first year of teaching. So once the early idealism has been replaced by the need for personal survival, and once that survival has then um, led to a need for the trainee to deal with difficulties, they then enter this, this plateau whereby they start to gain confidence in their ability to manage their classes. They're they're, they're coping, they're surviving, and they can solve the odd problem or two. But what they're still doing is that they're not not unconsciously teaching or being a teacher. They are acting like they think a teacher should act. So instead of thinking like a teacher, they are still acting in the way that they recall their teachers doing. So they don't necessarily, through their pedagogy, through their decision making, have much appreciation of the relationship between teaching and then how children themselves will learn. And so this perhaps is the uh, is where the, the elements of the science of learning and, and principles of cognition start to come into play. The teacher has developed an identity. They've created for themselves a, uh, a set of values by which they intend to teach. And now they are actually capable of having survived and, and, and blasted away their early idealism. They can now consciously construct experiences for students. 
And we go back to that lovely Herbert Simon quote about the teacher has the capacity only to influence what it is the student does to learn. They can't learn for them. Um, uh, nor will a student ever learn exactly what you teach them. They will learn their interpretation of what it is that you're teaching them. Um, and that, again, links beautifully back into my old favourite Nuttall and these various, these three worlds that these students inhabit. And the in that stage four, the trainee teacher perhaps is starting to get a handle on that. The fifth stage, and again, remember all of these, Furlong and Maynard feel, are taking place within that early development, that pre-service or pre-qualification phase, is that we have to move them on. So stage five is the moving on of the pre-service teacher. So they understand the roles and the responsibilities of profession, of being a professional educator. Um, and this, I think, links quite nicely back into what Adam talked about as the two core characteristics around um, relationships and reflection, that the importance of helping these pre-service teachers, these trainee teachers, evaluate their beliefs about the nature of teaching and learning is absolutely fundamental to their development as a fully professional teacher. And that, again, is the role of the mentor, isn't it? The mentor's ability to help the teacher evaluate their own beliefs of the nature of teaching and learning. Now, um, uh, in, in my discussion with Adam earlier, I was talking a little bit about uh, the work of Fred Corthagen or Corthagen um, uh, in relation to what sort of guides and creates and develops effective teachers. Um, and how they will reflect on and learn on on uh, the job. But also, Corthagen uses the the onion model, um, where he talks about the the sort of the six layers of reflection that teachers undergo. And they have at that the 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 heart of that is the mission, their core qualities. You know what what inspires me as a teacher? What's my ideal? Um, Corthagen's next layer is identity. So in my work, who am I? And if we go back to Furlong and Maynard, perhaps in those early stages, the teacher doesn't know who they are. They are a version of the teacher they think they should be, or they are a version of the teacher they want to be. From out of that identity and that mission come those beliefs. So, you know, what is it I believe in this particular situation? What is my genuine sort of heart and head here? And from that come my competencies. My next, my fourth layer of my onion of reflection is my competencies. What am I competent at? What can I do? What am I able to do perhaps in this situation? Then from that stem the behaviours, layer five. What do I do in these situations? What, what do I do when encountered with this particular issue? And then finally, the influence of the environment. And in essence, the things that around the situation that need to be dealt with. Um, and it's not, as uh, Corthagen is very keen to point out, guidelines necessarily on how to arrive at meaning, what he calls meaning-oriented reflection. But it shows that there's so many various layers that, that uh, in order to find a deeper meaning in a teaching situation, you've got to include, you, you have to go down to your beliefs, competencies, your identity and your mission in order to be able to find... Um, the uh, the deeper meaning within the situation itself as you evaluate it as you reflect it um and i asked adam the the trickiest of all questions you know what makes a good teacher what defines what's the essence of as, as Corthagen in earlier work would put the the essence of a good teacher and uh, he he asks some questions does he you know is this someone who shows the correct competencies summarized in standard lists so is a good teacher checklistable 
not that that's a word, um, revolting that I've just turned a noun into a verb. I do apologise for anyone out there that's interested in that apology. Um, is it someone who can use his or her own unique core qualities and connect them with other layers? And Corthagan proposed this view of an effective teacher as someone who's strong at aligning all those layers of the onion model and who therefore impacts their environment on the basis of a certain coherence between the core qualities, their ideals, their identity, their beliefs, their competencies, their behaviour, but also um, uh, an innate understanding of the characteristics of the environment. So professional development then becomes this process of working towards that coherence um, and, and striving to achieve it. And uh, I mean, it, it, gosh, it's a, it's a deep well, isn't it? The well of teacher professional development. It could be uh, plumbed and drained and, and, and many a bucket could be cast down and, and drawn up empty. Um, and many a bucket could be cast down, drawn up full, but with too many holes in the bucket to have, you know, the water doesn't make it to the top. But for me, uh, I think the the core thing, and Adam and I touched on this a little bit again, is that there's got to be a shared language. There has to be a, a mutual agreement on the, the glossary of teaching and learning that helps align the, the heart of the taught curricula from whichever provider we have with that manifestation in those various different areas of implementation that the trainees will will engage in so we have to have sort of if we see the curriculum as what i called earlier the lowest common denominator for our dialogue we don't we don't create student friendly or teacher trainee friendly versions of criteria okay we don't dumb down the curriculum language for those who don't yet understand it. We help those who don't yet understand it to understand it. And we ensure that those who are using it on a regular basis provide multiple encounters with it. Um, and, and I think that is also a, a highly important element of what it is that we're endeavouring to do. Um, we must never assume, we must never um, you know, make the assumption that all those involved in the implementation of, of curricula have an understanding of how it works. That's important as well. Um, and also, we have to ensure that we have that, that internal and external coherence. The internal curriculum coherence is that so that everybody understands. Um, and the external is how that coherence is then manifested in practice. Uh, and I think that gives us a lot to think about. And certainly something that I myself really want to explore in a lot more depth as we go forward. I've been looking at some of the work of Gadamer, um, which I've you know, found rather fascinating, I have to say, um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the need for this, uh, this shared language for dialogue to take place. Um, and I think, really, our biggest challenge as teacher educators comes with making sure that we are understood and making sure that communication isn't just us saying, but as Adam said earlier, it's us listening. And in order to listen and in order to say, there has to be a, a mutually agreed basis on which that dialogue will take place. And I think until we've got that, we haven't necessarily formed the appropriate foundations for the professional development. But anyway, I'm getting maudlin. Um, so uh, coming towards the end of what I hope has been a really, really informative and, and, and interesting show for you, I thank you for listening. I thank you for taking the time again out of your evenings to tune in. And if you've been listening to this via the podcast, um, then I thank you very much indeed for taking the time to download us. 
and to listen in to what it is that we've had to say. Uh, if you have got any uh, any points that you want to raise or any areas um, that you you want to discuss, then that's certainly something that we can look to incorporate. Um, perhaps if you, uh, you you get in touch with me via the uh, the at Teacher Talk Radio Twitter handle uh, and indicate anything that you want to suggest for future discussion, or if indeed you'd like to come onto the show um, and have uh, have your say. I would welcome that hugely. So I'm going to close, as I ever do, with a quotation. Um, and this time I'm going to keep it short and I'm going to go to Ayres from 2001, who on Teacher Educators said that our calling, after all, is to shepherd and enable the callings of others. And on that note, I'm going to say let's be careful out there. Uh, I wish you the very, very best for the coming week and I hope to see you soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.